Unkey is essentially unlocking API authentication and authorization for you as a developer to give to your end users. So let's say you have an API that you want to put out into the world. As soon as you do that, you need API keys to issue to an end user who can then use them, whether it's a developer or, or whoever. The problem with that is it's really hard to scale that globally. So like basically, we provide you keys that are globally distributed that you can add specific things to. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss modern web development with maintainers, founders, and developers. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter, at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got James Perkins from now Unkey, unkey.dev. James, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back for the third time now. I just should get like residuals at this point, I think. But yeah, good, good to be here. Love being here. Love chatting with you every single time. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. Yeah, we we crossed paths originally from I think through your YouTube content slash like you were just live streaming as well. Yeah, and then you had just took a job at Tina, went from Tina the clerk as like a power user to helping out with DevRel to now working on Key and. Um, I'm, I'm very interested about Unkey because this has come up multiple times in our Slack channel internally. It's like, oh, let's check this thing out. Like, what's the use case? And I'm, I'm really excited to, to learn more about the use cases for it. But want to start with uh, what is Unkey? That'd probably be the best place to start at. Yeah, so Unkey is essentially unlocking API authentication and authorization for you as a developer to give to your end users. So let's say you have an API that you want to put out into the world. And... As soon as you do that, you need API keys to issue to an end user who can then use them, whether it's a developer or, or whoever. The problem with that is it's really hard to scale that globally. So like, if you start getting users in Europe and you're in the US, how do you do all that kind of stuff? Uh, so basically, we provide you keys that are globally distributed across the globe that you can add specific things to. So maybe you want rate limiting on some keys, uh, maybe you want your keys to expire in a week or a month or a year. You can do that. We have ways to revoke those keys. We have ways to update those keys. Essentially, it gives you this all-in-one built-in API-first product that at the end of the day, as soon as you sign up, within five lines of code, you can start issuing keys to end users. Is this a pain point that you felt yourself? Or how did you sort of discover this? Yeah, so I can't take credit for the actual product. My co-founder, on uh, Andreas, or Cronark, he's known around Twitter and, and GitHub and everything, approached me uh, when I was at Clark, and he was at Upstash, and we he'd brought this product kind of idea up and said, hey, we should do co-marketing, we should use Clark, we should use Upstash, we should do it together, and then we can do some co-marketing, maybe do a blog on each blog, we share it around. And then when I heard the problem, I was like, we should just build this. It seems weird, like we should just build this product. Because, yeah, I've built many APIs, public-facing and privately-facing, and ones that interact with you know, thousands of other companies. And the biggest pain point is, like, how do you securely issue an API key? How do you make sure it's fast for whatever users are using it? And how do you track analytics around that API key? Like, How do you know if this person is using it 200 times more than the other person's, right? Like, All that stuff yeah. comes up. And every time I've built it, I've always started from scratch and built it. Andreas, same way, like built it the first time on, from scratch. Then the second time, sort of copied and pasted the code, modified it a little bit more, make it kind of generic. 
And then the third time he went to do it was when we we started Unkey because we were just like, what's the point? We should just build this instead. Yeah. Yeah, and this is something that I guess I had the benefit of working at GitHub and using their experience, right. which I think one of the most valuable things is like I got a bunch of keys that I'm, I'm basically spinning up like a quick little side project. I built a bunch of CLIs to support my role at GitHub, which kind of looked like open source, to be quite honest. And the cool thing about that is like it tells you the last time the key was used. Right. Uh, so if I build something, I'm like, I don't know if I should just wind this down. Like this got a bit of exposure. Uh, we'd also have some like security checks and reviews based on like what had GitHub Enterprise Access and what didn't. So anything that had GitHub Enterprise Access had to have an expiration. But then I didn't know if I had to like, regenerate and go find out where it was used, which becomes like a, an entire pain point in itself. I, I, I consider myself like a power user of GitHub, basically. Right. So uh, even as a non-employee at this point. I just I have a bunch of keys that I don't know what I'm doing with. Mm-hmm. We also have an interaction, and this is what excited me about uh, Unkey is like open source has an API as well, and we generate a JWT actually today. Uh, so not like a proper full on key, but the JWT is the same as your auth token, and that's what you use to interact with our OpenAI spec to go test some data in browser or to go build on top of open source, which like very few people outside of us are doing. But now I'm interested because. Like if we wanted to build out that experience, the developer experience, like it seems like Unkey might be the thing we want to we want to grow into. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea, right? Is that maybe you start building your API and like you've done, you've used this JWT because that's just you know you already have that, so it's easier to like kind of pass that around for now. But there's a point where yeah, like you want to build a great DX experience where you're like, hey, build on top of open source. Give me you know your API key plus some data, and I'll send it along. And that's how we can do it. Like, you know, it's one API code to issue the key and, uh, you know, one check to see if that key is valid. And if it's not valid, you just reject them. And if it is valid, you can continue on. And, you know, our response time is super fast. It's under our slowest times are about 30 milliseconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're super fast. Yeah, so for whatever reason, like we've had a lot of maintainers and founders of companies as of recent on the podcast, and I want to actually just dig into a bit of your sort of the, the founding story of Unkey. Uh, so you mentioned your your co-founder had built this already once before, had built it again. But I'm curious, as you were building this in the open, you had a full time job and a role at Clerk. So I'm curious, like as you discovered the problem, like how were you maintaining the day job but also scaling this? Open source fund side project to eventually make it a company. Yeah, uh, lots of late nights, lots of weekends, which is the classic. Yeah, yeah. So we both had an agreement that we'd only work part time, and we'd work weekends, and that would be it. And and we would try and you know keep Unki just kind of ticking along. So the initial part when we built the initial part, it happens in June, and I happened to be off of work for a couple of days. And Andreas is in Germany, so he would finish work, and then I just happened to like be online. So we spent a big spike of our first initial MVP just in those first like five days, and that was almost ready for production at that point. So then we just fixed a bunch of stuff and and kind of moved on. But as we started to scale, it was very very hard to be like, I have Gluck, and I need to do a minimum of forty hours of Gluck, and I was always doing fifty hours, and I treated Gluck. Kind of like I was part of the founding team, and then I had to spend anywhere from two to four hours, or even more, every night working on Unkey, fixing bugs, or trying to figure out like how the strategy works, or making the marketing stuff you know kind of flashy enough to to announce. It was very hard, 
And there was a point right before I left Clark where there was like a tipping point. And I guess some, maybe you had the same thing when you were at GitHub where you kind of just realized that like, I love Clark and I love the product and, and it'll always be somewhere in my like whatever, like I'll always recommend it. But there was a point where I cared way more about what Unki was doing than I did about Clark's success. So I was at this point where in the road where it was like, well, I care about Clark's success, but I care way more about if Unki's going to do something. And then that's really where I knew that we were on the right road. And we had already had talks with VCs and we'd already had talks with investors about like, hey, we want to invest or we could be investing at that point. Yeah, and at that point you you had so only like a handful of months in. Mm-hmm. It sounded like you figured out the MVP early. You got it started getting a, a bit of adoption and some sort of folks noticing you based on like I would I would notice like a few tweets from you and your co-founder every now and then be like, oh yeah, he can do this, or here's a new website. Like when you had your landing page launch, it was like pretty nice to look at, mm-hmm. had a better understanding of what the product was. So did you raise money before quitting, or did you go ahead and quit and then go get some checks? Yeah, so we had checks in line already before I'd left Clark and before he had left Upstash. We had already raised over a million at that point. So we knew we had checks in place. So at that point, it was like, well, we're all in, let's just do this uh, kind of thing. Because as you know, VCs don't want to invest in people that are doing part-time work, so you've got to be all in. And so yeah, we'd, we'd already raised a, over it. It was like a 1.1 at that point. And we were really ready to go already, but you know, tying loose ends at both jobs and making sure everything's in line before before we left. Yeah, and I forget that your co-founder was at Upstash too, which yeah, is another yeah. sort of up and coming uh-huh. dev tool startup as well. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, how did you guys meet originally? Through Clark. So if you know Andreas, uh, he is a serial builder, so he's built a bunch of different side projects over the time. And he was working on Planetfall, which is a way to test global latency for APIs, a uh, common theme. And uh, he was building that, and it was like right when, I think it was last NextJS Conf. So not this one I just went, but the one before, when it was App Router announcement, all that kind of stuff. And Clark supported day one of App Router, or it was like a week after or something like that. And he was one of the very first people that wanted to use it. And it was buggy. And it wasn't perfect, so like he had come into Discord and started chatting, and ever since then we pretty much became friends. And then I did some work for Upstash, and and we just kept in touch ever since. Excellent. And who are the um, who are the folks who earliest um, I guess users that came on board? Are these folks that represent companies and developers that had to maintain APIs? Yeah. So it was kind of an interesting spread. So we had some just like AI builders that maybe more in the indie space where they were like, hey, I want to build this cool new AI project, but I also want an API to be able to interact with. They were our first real sets of users because like building on AI is really easy until you get to the point where you need to like have some sort of API and then it becomes a bit more complex. So we had a lot of those. And then our biggest customer, who's still our biggest customer to date, is uh, Premier, who are a crypto trading platform. So they built a, an API that essentially allows them to whitelist their own product. Uh, so they can now go and say like, hey, you want to be an, a, a broker of your own or you want to work in a brokerage and you want to be able to do these crypto trades on the fly instead of through a UI. And they had like a bump a month last month. They did like 10 million verifications last month, which is 
huge in in comparison. They were doing like uh, I think they did like a hundred k the month before, so it was like you know this dramatic increase, and it was a bit of a oh, are we ready for this? Well, I guess we'll find out now because they're just they're pushing two million a day right now. So wow. They came on board before you you raised funding then? Yeah, yeah. They were our they we had basically we launched June twenty first. We launched pricing July I think it might have been fourth of July or just after fourth of July. And they signed like a contract with us like three days later. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's that's uh yeah. I mean <laughs> yeah, this is wow. an amazing trajectory of uh of sort uh-huh. of like zero to <laughs> To a two million right. uh, invocations, activations, or whatever the term was, but yeah, I, I mean, absolutely fascinating. Like, if you look back in since July, like, would you do anything different at this point, or do you feel like this is like kind of like a nice Cinderella story? I think we may have done some things differently. I think there was a lot of just like the blind leading the blind. Like the product itself, like we were both we we're both serial builders, so building the product was the easy part. It was everything else, except from marketing, like everything else was hard. I definitely would have probably spent more time talking to other founders about like, hey, like, how do you do this? Because this is wild. Like I've, you know, everything that comes along with raising money and all that kind of stuff. And then when you raise the money, then it's just like more paperwork and even more paperwork and, you know, less time building. But like as a product itself, I feel incredibly lucky every day that one, we got some adoptions from some people, and two, that that adoption rate, although may, you know, like paying users is not as high as it could be, and we're not really caring about that right now. We're more cared about people just trying us out. We still have people in the pipeline right now that are fairly big, either fairly big startups or fairly big personalities, let's put it, I guess personalities yeah. is the right word. I don't know, like people that you, if you saw, oh, Unki is associated with this person, that you'd be like, oh, maybe they are legit kind of thing. Yeah, We have a few of those in the pipeline too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can only speculate on what companies and who you're talking to. Right. Uh, I definitely want to have uh, Dub.co on, uh, Stephen Tay. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. He's just recently just started putting together an API, I think only in September, um, I think. And I know because we've been using it, and we're we're, we're a paying user of of the dub.co short URL service. But I imagine like even that as an interaction to be able to say, okay, like we want to have like a a white labeled experience of generating for open source. We have charts and graphs and, right. and a bunch of data. How do we white label this experience and use our data, but also be able to like pipe in some generated tokens and keys for dub.co? I mentioned before we got online, like the, the the experience of OpenAI is also pretty underwhelming when you really start mm-hmm. embedding this into your product. Uh, I was using Table Plus today, and they have this cool little generate SQL queries uh, inside of this like SQL ID. Like I'm not a database person, data engineer, but Table Plus is like the ID to connect your your Postgres connection. But they have this little side panel where you can chat and say, "Hey, based on this table." Generate a query that does this mm. in the context as I'm using time series and blah blah blah, and uh, it generates stuff pretty cool. But I have to generate a token to OpenAI, paste it in OpenAI, and then hope for the best that I remember how this works and and nothing's going to be leaked or anything like that. And honestly, like I yeah, OpenAI's side I don't know it tells you the last use, but it doesn't really give me a good way to like generate spin things up and spin things down on demand. So I could I could imagine. Obscuring that part of the feature into some like experience, like developer experience, because the manual process of generating a key as a user 
pacing it in, hoping for the best. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that like that's how AI went. Is that like, yeah, just paste another open AI API key in here. And it's like, uh, okay, that's... <laughs> Okay, I'm giving you my secrets basically. Like I'm yeah. I'm willing to paste in this secret that costs me money to do. And that's one thing that we're targeting in the middle of Jan- like in January is like helping AI developers build this secure API that they can use. And you have options, right? Like just charge your user per usage or whatever it might be and then just pass it through your own API key or if you want to have them have this interaction like make it seamless. One of the biggest things is is token based generation is a huge thing where you know if you you know you've ever used like Rooms GPT for example which was a really popular project for a while where like they gave you three tokens and then you can generate three rooms and if you want more you pay more that piece of AI is so complex for people today because they have to build in okay I've got to build my project now I've got to figure out how does like tokens work like how can I build tokening into my system how do I charge people for this all these things are really complex and we're targeting that in January to simplify that whole experience where essentially you can create a key that has a remaining amount so let's say 100 tokens and then you can then have it automatically refill on a schedule so every month, someone pays you 100 yeah. uh, for 100 tokens. Every month, we'll just refill it for you. So all you have to do, you don't have to worry. Yeah, Just like, boom, I've given you this key. It's going to refresh to back to 100 every month. You don't have to worry. And, and that all that's kind of there. We have half of it now where remaining exists. So you could do that today, but you have to manually update the key every month. But in January, we'll have this new feature where you can essentially set daily or monthly, please refill back to 100 every Every day, yeah. I mean, as you're explaining this, even like the thought of so you mentioned like analytics and like usage and mm-hmm. so like well we we were, we've been a long time a long time OpenAI users. Well, since they've had the API available to be leveraged, mm-hmm. uh, I've been tinkering around with it. And um, before the pricing changes in the summer, like we were like it was like maybe five dollars a month. Now it's like like twenty five cents a month based on our our users and usage. But what I'm getting at is like I didn't know what that was going to look like before I added the feature. To open source, mm-hmm. so like you just you got VC money, so you're just hoping for the best, right? Making sure it doesn't break the bank. So it turned out it didn't break the bank based on the one feature we have that uses OpenAI right now. But the reservation was like, I don't know if we want to put too many features because we don't know what the what the usage will look like. How how can we gate this? But if we're able to like generate tokens on demand and then have some sort of insight to say, hey, someone hit the limit, there's an opportunity to say, hey, you've hit our paid tier. Like here's a conversation we could start. Um, Today, kind of hard to do without right. constantly opening up the platform that OpenAI.com. And then looking at that specific one and figuring it out. Yeah. yeah, all that goes away. And then overlapping based on usage data, like what user is actually overusing something. And yeah, it'd be nice to just know this off the bat. Yeah, and with Unki, you can set... So the way that Unki kind of works is you have a workspace, and inside of there you can set APIs, however many you want. It's unlimited, so you can set prod, preview development, or maybe it's like very specific to routes if you want to be really, really specific to maybe a feature, for example. So then you have, for each API, you have your set of analytics for that API. That's for every single key. And then if you want even more analytical data, you can actually go in and look at the per key requests and see which keys are doing what and, and you know, when are they doing it? When are they most busy? How many are they putting through in a month? Seven days? All that stuff comes along out of the box and doesn't cost you anything. 
Excellent, cool. Yeah, so uh, if folks want to get started with Unkey, like what are the what are the steps? Yeah, uh, it's just sign up for a free account on unkey.dev. Once you've signed up for an account, uh, we take you through an onboarding experience, essentially that shows you like, hey, we've created your workspace. Go ahead and create your first API where you're going to keep all your keys, create a root key, and then we give you like a little curl command that you can test to see that it works. And then we also do one more piece in our onboarding that's basically like, hey, check out what happens when you try and verify the key that you just made. You do that. And then after that, it's either you can use our API directly or you can use an SDK. Like, for example, if you're running Next.js on, you know, like a TypeScript backend, it's easy as installing at unkey slash API. And then it's like two lines to verify, two lines to issue a thing, and you just decide how you want to implement it yourself, serverless, server, however you want to do it. Is it a language agnostic, or is this like a yeah. TypeScript thing? Yeah, yeah, it's completely agnostic. Uh, we have SDKs for specific languages right now. So we have uh, Rust, we have TypeScript, we have Go, we have Python, we have a bunch of different ones. But like the API itself is just a simple REST API that has an open API spec, so you could even you know generate your own SDK if you prefer and have it in the language of your choice. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, I definitely going to put this on the the pipeline for uh, Q1, Q2 for us to take a look at for sure. So, I will be in touch for sure. I hope folks, if you're interested in maintaining your APIs for developer experience and for your users, definitely check out Unkey. Thanks, appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, so we're going to transition to picks. Uh, you've been here before, so mm-hmm, you know the road. Mm-hmm. It's uh, stuff that we're jamming on. Could be music, could be food, could be entertainment, tech related, all of the above. And I will go first, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I've actually, so I had a pick like quite a few years ago, which was the June oven, which is like a sort of machine learning empowered oven, desktop oven that toasts bread, but also you could proof your, your sourdough and you could roast an entire turkey if you wanted to. Well, a small turkey. Been loving this device, but as with almost all software, <laughs> it has an end life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wished, based on the cost of the thing, it didn't have an end life of four years, but here we are. The company itself got acquired by Weber Grill. Yep, yep. Which means like almost everything about the product and everything is just like absorbed into like Weber products, uh, which kind of sucks because it means that my product is literally end of life and it's basically broken. So I've been in the market of toasters. Because like the thing I used it the oven for, ironically, six hundred dollar oven. <laughs> all I do is toast bread in it. So it doesn't matter how how much tech is can be involved. If it can toast bread, that's all I care about. So I've been actually rethinking about my entire life and simplicity. And trying to buy a toaster is actually quite interesting. You go to Target and like there's just a bunch of options, and some have like I definitely am never going to have like a digital toaster ever again because why? Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to make the make sure the toast doesn't burn. Um, so I don't have actually a pick of a toaster, but I have like a number of toasters I've been like reviewing. Looking, I, funny enough, Wired has the toaster reviews. It's been a fun process to look at such such a simple device. That first principles, like does the bread burn or does it not burn? Like that's the answer you can ask, and like you can go from a twenty dollar toaster to like a two hundred dollar toaster. It's pretty ridiculous, but I'm having fun being in the market for a toaster. I'll probably buy one uh, in the next day or so. And uh, I'll report back on which one I chose, but I'm, I'm I don't even know. It's like a Cuisinart is the one with the four bay toasters because I got a I got a family of four, so we all need our own toast at the same time. I, I could see that being a, a being a challenge. I don't eat breakfast, so I don't have this toast problem. I did have this toast problem when I lived in the UK, and I went through loads of different toasters. Lots, lots of beans and toast growing up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. A lot. Even when I was an adult, it's cheap. 
But yeah, like talking of picks, I have a thing, it's in a similar vein uh, that I always like to bring up, which is I have Tavella, which is also in the sort of smart oven space because I'm also bougie like that, I guess. So essentially what it is, is very similar to the other kind of oven. Essentially, it has like a QR code scanner on it and it also has like a web app that's built in. And what it does is allows you to essentially cook things to perfection is the idea. So you could put chicken breasts in there and just like click a button and it'll just be like, these are going to be perfect every single time. And on top of that, they deliver meals that are like less than three minutes to prepare and less than 30 minutes to cook in the oven. And I use that because I just, it's just me and, and, and Abby and that's it. So we use that. And it's like the best experience ever. It comes every week. You take it out and it's got like, you know, those little aluminum trays and you put a bunch of ingredients in and you just scan a QR code and every single time it comes out cooked to perfection. And it makes really good toast. Uh, Not really helping you, but it does make really good toast because it steams the bread as it toasts it. So you get like a nice, like squishy in in the middle and crisp on the outside. That is, uh, that's quality right there. And um, yeah, yeah. I think my wife would hate me recommending another smart toaster, but <laughs> I'm actually intrigued. I'm intrigued by the the whole meal planning portion of this as well. So, mm-hmm. James, you might have ruined my entire toaster shopping experience. Yes, I've done it. I've done it. Yeah, convert one more person to Devella. That's my thing. Excellent. I'll get your uh, your coupon code. There you go. There must be a referral code somewhere. Excellent. Yeah. Well, appreciate the uh, the pick. Uh, I don't know if you had another pick. I have one more pick, which is actually tech related. And more just like maybe more for founders than anybody. It's called Rise Calendar, which allows you to basically put all of your people on a calendar so that you can see everybody, including time zones, because time zones are really hard in general. And they're even harder when you've got someone in Europe and then East Coast, and it makes it really complex. And essentially what it does is it does two things. One, it allows you to kind of see everybody's time zones and, and figure out what's good. Two, it allows you to do these flexible meetings. So Andreas and I meet every week, but it has this like flexibility. So if his day or my day fills up with stuff, it will just move it and send a new update. So say, hey, hey, on I know it's supposed to be at 8.30 in the morning, but we've moved it to 7.30 because that gives you like a block of time to keep focused. And it also will actually put on your calendar focus time if you get too many meetings in a day yeah. so that you have like enough time to actually do anything. And it also allows you to uh, share a meeting invite with, say, like maybe you need to meet with an outside person and it has to be three people on your team. It will create a link for you with all of everybody's calendar and figure out like when really good availability is and it will send a link with that availability only so that you don't have to have the problem of like, well, we put this on the calendar, but you know that's Mike's lunchtime or something. You know, somebody's lunchtime and now they can't have lunch because they've got to have this meeting or move it around. It's free. I think it's free up to like five people on a team. It's really great. It's helped us like keep, you know, some of those meetings away so that we have focus time so we can actually do stuff, even when those random meetings crop up that you didn't expect. You know, it's funny. I remember this being like a thing, like post Calendly time, but like mm-hmm. in between now and then, uh, when Calendly showed up, huge pain point. And uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I, I'm, I'm glad you, you shared this pick because. Uh, we do have folks in different time zones, and this would actually be super helpful as we coordinate scaling the team up. 
Yeah, it definitely helps with that. It was one of the first things that Andreas and I did was like, hey, everybody gets a Rise account because I don't have time to figure out what time zone you're in and what time it is there and all that kind of stuff. It just shows up. It's great. Excellent. Well, appreciate the pick and appreciate the chat as well. And listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer for startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 